0: Hello everyone, welcome to 15 Minutes, a podcast about fame, episode 46. I'm Jamie Berger, and my guest today is Scott McLeod, a cartoon artist who many of you may know all the way back from the 80s, from his comic Zot, to the book that gained him wider fame, understanding comics, and the follow-ups to that starting in 1994, and that's where I first knew of him. And a few weeks ago I was in a local bar called Seymour which has a great library of books and I picked up his recent 2015 graphic novel his first graphic novel after a 30 year career called The Sculptor and it was right up the 15 minutes alley in that it it tells the story of a young sculptor named David Smith who is the namesake of a famous real life sculptor named David Smith, who is rather obsessed with fame and his legacy and making his mark and who makes a Faustian bargain to gain that. And we see how that plays out. It's a wonderful book. And I won't say more about it than that. But I wanted to give you a little background because we talk about it quite a bit. We also talk about everything from and you know, I don't usually do this. Uh, Jessica Abel and I have argued about, she once said to me, mm, to the effect of, you think you can just have conversations with interesting people and you don't have to, to pitch it or, or, or offer a hook more than that. And I was like, well, yeah, that that's what I'm hoping to do. My hope is to be able to help interesting people say interesting things they have to say about fame, and then get out of their way. And that that alone is enough to make this succeed. Uh, So the point is that I don't usually uh, hype or pitch the episode or the guest. I just let you decide. But in this case, I want to tell you, because there are so many fun things in here that we talk about everything from, oh, Vulcan civilization to the moral demise of Scott Adams uh, to the mathematics of fame and obscurity, to the unexpected solace that can be found in the knowledge that someday we will all be forgotten. We recorded on Labor Day, and while I should probably have deleted it, I'm leaving in a little Labor Day message that I think should make us all feel a smidge better any day. Scott McCloud and I spoke on the phone, as I said, on Labor Day. Are you there? Hello. Hello, Scott McLeod. Before we begin talking about obscurity and <laughs> fame, uh, I wanted to send out my little message uh, that happy Labor Day to you and everyone. And I, wanted, I, I Googled Labor Day, and they actually have not trashed the Department of Labor website. It begins with this uh, two sentences. Labor Day... The first Monday in September is a creation of the labor movement and is dedicated to the social and economic achievements of American workers. It constitutes a yearly national tribute to the contributions workers have made to the strength, prosperity, and well-being of our country. Wow. I just think it's nice to find little, yes, little good moments these these days.
1: <laughs> who, knew, who knew we'd be rooting for the deep state, huh?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, what a time! Yeah, Yeah. what a time indeed. And later on, I'll talk to you about that because I was listening to lectures you gave about two years ago when 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 the book when when Sculptor came out that were very optimistic (laughs) about uh, you know uh, racial and gender integration and progress that's being made. But let's 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 uh, um, let's try to avoid it and get to it later.
1: Yeah, that would have been early 2015. Very different time, huh?
0: But the other day, when I, when, well, when we were writing, or the other last few weeks, and you mentioned that obscurity was a very interesting, uh, uh, an interesting way to look at this topic. Yeah, uh, and especially in your art form, where people make these, I kind of piled up some of my graphic novels on my desk. Uh, Asterios Polyp, black hole. Oh yeah, and and you and people labor for for years over these. Pre- I mean, I'm a writer, but I somehow it feels so much more laborious than a novel. I never finished a novel though. And then they're gone, and you made them. They exist. They're noticed. They they're not usually reprinted unless they're extremely popular. This is very. I'm already getting gloomy. <laughs> No, it's okay. So, why did obscurity come come to mind for you?
1: Well, I have to say, as far as comics specifically goes, you know, yeah, it's it's something where we have to do a lot of cruel calculations about how many hours we're going to pour into it and how quickly people can read just one page of our of our work and how long it took to make. But then you have to multiply it by the number of people who are going to read it. You hope it'll last. You hope it'll stick around long enough, maybe be translated into other languages. And then it's not so bad. Then the math gets a little kinder. But yeah Chris Ware has written about this pretty eloquently. He called them these slow motion picture stories that we labor at for decades while our friends you know grow older and have children and their children have children and and it takes so long to do anything mm-hmm. uh, but it's okay it's it's i think you have to have a particular um you know, a particular, uh, what's the word temperament, you know, to even be drawn to cartooning at all, you have to be a little bit more private. You have to be maybe a little bit more ex- accepting of obscurity or accepting of isolation. Maybe it's something that brought you into comics in the first place. So that's okay. Um, but obscurity, yeah, became very interesting to me lately because I, I realized that it's, it's the vast majority of people, are forgotten and most of them if they have any cr- kind of creative aspirations they're forgotten in their lifetime you know if, before they even die they get to see whatever it is, just quietly fade away yeah um and that's a very powerful thing that's the main experience
0: i'm going to interrupt you for a second because you're breaking up a little and skype is saying they're having a do you have a little a window that's saying there's a little bit of a technical problem Let me just, uh, let's see what happens if I respond to what you just said. In making this podcast, I try to do a mathematics of what, who are enough people to listen to make it feel satisfying. Uh, Because I haven't even, in the first year, the idea of it making any money is not, (laughs) it's not, it's not part of a making a living thing. It's because I like doing it. But I I do say to friends that I'm not, writing my journal and I'm not sending a newsletter to just 50 friends and family but but how do you ever decide so you're saying that that you know international reach and I mean there's math there's math of money and there's math of of I mean attention fame Uh, that I guess is what you were you were getting at there
1: well, think of – there are different ways to think of fame. One way to think of it is uh, you want to get uh, – you have a launch window, right? There is it going to last? Is it going to last beyond you? And there is that sense of reaching escape velocity where something sort of lands in the public consciousness to such a degree that it actually sticks around. And and that's not necessarily exactly fame. That has maybe more to do with legacy. Um I think most creative people aren't really searching for fame so much as they're searching for respect, endurance, some kind of lasting legacy. They want they want what they make to not just vanish. Right. They, they want to think that at least they have a generation or two before it goes away, because because in many cases earthly rewards aren't necessarily uh, all that great to begin with. So you're kind of trading it in for something that's that's going to stick around.
0: I would I would think especially in comics and graphic novels, you and any other writers and fans must have a, oh a lot of a lot a lot of great people you know who have struggled with the the math of obscurity and given up, or who have written something great that disappeared quickly.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think cartoonists from the very beginning probably try to uh, keep their living expenses low. Some of us succeed better than others. Uh, I don't count myself particularly full, you know, in that regard, but, um, keeping expectations low. And I I think that there's humility is definitely a, uh, a quality that's, that's true of a lot of cartoonists, um, sometimes mixed with a certain amount of self-loathing. Um, we may have that in common with with comedians. I'm not sure. Oh yeah. But, um, (laughs) sometimes that's the feature. Yeah. And writers, um, but others just – I don't know. They find a kind of joy in small things, um, and that, that joy may have drawn them to the medium in the first place. So it also sustains them. It also keeps them uh, buoyed up uh, you know, over time when, when things are a bit rough. But of course, there are genuine success stories, and there are people who reach quite a lot of uh, readers – one of the cool things about right now is that the ways in which you can succeed are varied, much more so than ever before. Uh, nowadays, there are a lot of different ways that you can reach a, a wide audience. Sometimes it's through adaptation. Sometimes it's uh, you know by uh, really dominating a particular market. And there are different markets. Sometimes it's straight up online, direct communication with readers. And there are people who have hundreds of thousands, even millions of readers. They are out there.
0: When I talk to Jessica Abel, she really values that direct communication online with readers. That gives her a lot of the satisfaction.
1: Uh, yeah.
0: Of making the work. Yeah,
1: that's that's really important, and, and also I think you know maybe it's healthier than the old system where where you know somebody who was genuinely famous or on the the edge of fame they would get their interaction with the public just in a burst you know, in these awkward little explosions where they would be on stage or they would, you know, be at some big, big event. Having a daily conversation with, with readers is, it's healthier because it's it's on manageable scale. Uh, yeah, you might have an inbox that builds up, but, you know, you can actually talk to people as people uh, one at a time, you know, in that way. And that's, it's better, it's healthier, it's more spread out healthier, more
0: spread out and, and less, yeah, yeah, less like a uh, bipolar than waiting to win the awards or yeah, right, <laughs> cash the zillion dollar check.
1: Um, yeah. Every, every medium yeah. has some version of that. It has some version of like the thing that you kind of fantasize of. Um, but, you know, I think we're, we're somewhat more attainable, you know, on this end of the the fame scale. You know, that's the the things that we hope for could happen. You know, you might want to, you might win an award at SPX or something and, you know, have a couple of hundred alternative comics fan clapping for you or something. You might, they might buy you a pizza, you know, it's just like, that's, that's attainable. That's human scale, right?
0: Was there a moment when you were like, okay, this is, this is my career and I have I have people who want me to keep doing this and it, it, it's going to be what I, I mean, was there a, you know, after, um, understanding comics perhaps, or, or,
1: or before that with, um, with Zot? Yeah. Well, there was definitely a dividing line between those two things. The first comic that I did that you mentioned Zot, it had, you know, I had an audience, they were loyal, they weren't very big, but, but they were sustaining. Right. You know, so I felt like, yeah, I got my niche, you know, people know my name it's okay. After understanding comics, things, I could tell it went, it kind of bumped up to the next level. And, you know, I started to have more of an international following. Um, a lot of people started to know money name. a lot of people who maybe hadn't seen the other stuff, they were starting to read it because a book that was about so many different things reached out to different, you know, uh, you know, different professions, but, but it was still, I was still on that kind of niche level. And, and I, I guess I realized pretty early on that that's a good place to be, you know, that, that I'm still like all writers, of course, they, that we all have that thing in common that nobody knows what we look like. We're very few people. So, you know, we don't get hassled. We don't, you know, have people coming up to us much. Yeah. yeah.
0: You don't have any of that, that the negatives of, of fame and that I sometimes.
1: Yeah exactly and i think probably the worst of it has to be character actors have to be the worst because they have people coming up to them to, they, they they think they know them right he so like, says oh i know that guy and it's like hey how you doing and then it takes like five minutes for them to realize no i just know this person from a tv show and they have that same damn conversation like 50 times a day yeah 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 and i i i, I recently
0: was talking to um uh, a comedian, Bobby Tisdale, who is friends with someone who is very, actually, in, in the episode, we didn't mention it, but I feel like in this episode, he talked. I asked him about what it's like being out with a f- super famous friend. And I won't mention it. You can figure it out. You Google Bobby, you'll find it. Um, and he mentioned an aspect of it I didn't think about, and that is that you get kind of jealous. <laughs> uh, you you watch the hassle that the, the person is going through, but you're also like, I'm on a TV show. Hey, look over here. (laughs) And they steal the conversation away from you and your friend just sitting and having a meal. But I mean, you know, for the, you know, for the price of the success, it seems like it's a small thing unless you become, you know, Michael Jackson and you can't go
1: anywhere. Right. But, you know, the funny thing is we use the words interchangeably, right? We say success, fame, fortune, all those things. Each one has their own physics, though, right? Very true. Acclaim. Yeah. So, I mean, like, there's respect. You hope you'll get the respect of your peers. But that that doesn't always correlate with fame, right? You can be famous and not respected. You can be a YouTube star who humiliated themselves, and now half the country knows who you look like. That's not very useful. You can have fame without fortune. You can have fame without the money. That happens. That's usually infamy, but it happens.
0: Yeah, not always, though. You know, I I know some some highly, well, they're not famous, acclaimed, wonderful poets (laughs) poets, who, you know, only have written the wonderful poems and got none of the other rewards.
1: Right, exactly. Uh, And then, you know, like, I mean, think of it, it's like if you were to choose these different features from a Chinese menu, what would you pick? You would pick respect of your peers. You'd pick enough money to keep going. So you're comfortable. So you don't have to think about money, right? So you can keep working and you hope you can reach a lot of people without them necessarily knowing much about you, you know, just, just maybe knowing your name or whatever. And that's a good life. And there are people who actually get that life. They get to keep going. They don't have to worry about money. They, they get an ego boost on a semi-regular basis and they get left alone.
0: That's wonderful. It's funny that you made the, the the short Chinese menu there and you left off the thing that is certainly uh your David Smith's big one and that you mentioned earlier and that is legacy. And what I wonder uh because that's my job here is how much is how much of you is in David and how much is legacy in in that that fame physics the, the,
1: one of the bigger aspects for you? Well, my David Smith, uh, you know, the protagonist of this graphic novel who shares a name with a truly famous sculptor, David Smith. So he is, he is the other David Smith. Um, I may not have had that exact experience, but I definitely had that concern with legacy when I was young. I thought about that a lot. I figured, yeah, what, what do I want? I actually had an exercise with other cartoonists where we had to like figure out in a few words what we actually wanted from all this and i said i wanted my i wanted what i made to be important or beautiful and i wanted it to last and that's what this character wanted he he wanted his stuff to last and a lot of it is just that futility of that because yeah maybe it'll last for a generation maybe it'll last for 10 generations but one way or another everybody gets forgotten and that's a kind of spooky thing to realize, but it also, it can be comforting when you can internalize that. When you realize that no matter what you do, it really doesn't matter. Everybody gets forgotten. It's liberating. And, and that's the journey of that protagonist in that graphic novel. Yeah,
0: and I have to decide because I feel like at least 10 people will hear this show and they won't have heard of, of the sculptor before and I want them to go read it which I actually picked up in a a local bar that has a library of books. And that's how I was like, oh, it'd be good to talk to, you know, because I had read Understanding Comics way back when. But um, my point is that I really, the last scene in the novel, I think is just lovely. And the last, the conversation that that David and and Meg have, uh, it's a great way of addressing that, that, that we all disappear eventually conundrum. I loved it. Yeah.
1: Well, thank you, James.
0: Hey, I want to make sure I I keep meaning to ask comedians this, but with comic book, graphic novelists, uh, cartoonists, I think I said people who make comics and you said cartoonists and I never know whether I'm offending anybody with any of those. Nah, (laughs)
1: no, you know, terminology, like for a while, for a while we were, we were word police a little bit because the way that people talked about comics, there, was, there were years when it was just all informed by things like the Batman TV show. Mm-hmm. And, and they would mix up terms a lot. So, yeah, for a while we had to be like, oh, hang on. This is what we mean when we say this. Nowadays, it's not such a big deal. And, you know, we would use terms like graphic novels so that people would say, oh, what's that? You know, so that then they could learn that there's this new kind of comic. But then as soon as they know that, we can go back to calling them comics because comics were just that's just the word that we use for the whole art form. Right. So there's comic strips, there's graphic novels, there's there's traditional superhero comics, there's manga from Japan. But all of that stuff, it's all one art form. It's comics. And uh, and, you know, so where we had to sort of decontaminate the term from people who thought it was all funny animals and superheroes, that's all. Every art form has its its different modes, right? It has the ca- It has its casual Fridays, and it has its dress-up award ceremony, and we use different terms for those things.
0: A thought I had actually, and I have whenever I read a great graphic novel, but especially because I, since I started doing this, so you 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 recently I heard you talking about the those who can't do teach, and and that was part of your uh, of of maybe a, a smidge <laughs> of why you felt you needed to write a graphic novel. So that being the case, and you being Scott McLeod, who writes about, you know, the form, did it cause you, A, did it cause you a lot of anxiety when it was about to come out? And B, did you, how did you feel afterwards with the reception and the...
1: Well, you know, as far as the graphic novel goes, yeah, I mean, I felt a lot of pressure because I was the guy who who talked about comics for years talked about how to, I even had a book about making comics, right? So the pressure was really on, but I figured the pressure was kind of healthy because it kept me, it kept me in my seat. It kept me working really hard. And then I figured, you know, people might love it and they might hate it. It's going to be one or the other. And then in the end, I was wrong because it was both. (laughs) There were actually a significant significant number of people really loved the book and a significant number really hated it. And, And I thought, well, at least, okay, at least they care. And I like the fact that a lot of people read it all the way through in one sitting, which is kind of unusual because it's 500 pages. So I figured, okay, well, it's, at least it's a page turner one way or another. But, but it also left me with, like, accomplished this, this particular thing I managed to do. But obviously, I still have big holes in my resume because I'm still learning to be a writer. You know, I'm still a, I'm a pretty young writer. I may be 57 years old, but I actually haven't written that much fiction if you put it all on a shelf, it's, it's only a few years worth of writing. So I'm still learning and, and I like being in that place where, yeah, I have, I have things that I, I have some notches in my belt. I have some things that I've done, but I also know that I can still feel like a beginner and feeling like a beginner, I think is one of the most healthy sensations an artist can have feeling like you're still, you're still at the base camp of the mountain. That's, Good. That's a good feeling, and and it's harder to get as you get older. And I think a lot of people think that it's a sign of weakness to feel that way, but they're making a terrible mistake because that's that's your secret strength if you can still feel like a beginner. Yeah,
0: and and, and they need to they need to go read Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Uh, I guess I do too. Uh, yes, I, it's a title I remember from the days when I used to try harder to meditate. <laughs> meditate. Uh, I don't remember who wrote it. Uh, speaking
1: of, of
0: things like that, are are you in Northern California?
1: Yeah, I'm in Southern California. Oh, for southern. now. We got family out here. Although I think my wife and I are, are ready to relocate at some point to someplace cooler. Well,
0: oof, I, I moved to Western Mass from San Francisco and the other day, such frightening. It was 106 in San Francisco the other day. Oh yeah. All time yeah. record. Horrible, scary. And the,
1: and the Russian embassy was still burning their, their papers. <laughs> yes, yes.
0: To keep, They were just doing it to keep warm.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I grew up in Lexington, Massachusetts, and my wife and I actually lived in Amherst for a while.
0: Yeah, I, I heard you talking about that. I listened to the two big lectures that are on YouTube, um, the one from, from Chicago and the one at Harvard. So I heard about that and that you were in, yeah, you were in Northampton when you... Uh, worked on the Creator's Bill of Rights.
1: That's right. Well, I was visiting there, but I, I was living, yeah, in uh, Somerville, I think was where I was when I wrote that.
0: When you talk about the Turtle guys, was Mark Bodie one of the people?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Mark Bodie was was one of that gang. Um, there are a lot of people working with uh, Peter Laird and Kevin Eastman who created the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And it was pretty wild watching you know, they they were one of the, you know, I mentioned earlier that there are these different kinds of success, right? They had achieved this particular kind of explosive success when they created the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and those things were everywhere, all over the place. So they had mountains of, you know, money just collapsing on top of them, and and they had to cope with that one way or another. But but they surrounded themselves with a lot of friends, and they got to, you know, sort of have fun just kind of sharing the fun with with a lot of people around them, but there were also a lot of pressures and a lot of difficulties that that came with that. Yeah, I, I'm hoping to talk. He's uh, the father of a dear, dear friend
0: of mine, and we've met a few times. And I'd like to talk to both father, daughter is a professional musician, father is Mark Bodie, and grandfather, Vaughn Bodie. Yeah, so I'd love to hear their their experiences with that, and especially that sudden Ninja Turtles fame and and I and wealth out of out of the blue, and. Surviv surviving that, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, and they dealt with it in different ways, yeah, but that's you know you yeah there's there's hitting the money wall, right, that's something that a lot of people have to deal with with fame, and then there's. You know, like, but it's very different if they had been if they had been the turtles, right? <laughs> you know, if everybody knew them when they walked down the street, but they were actually these two guys that could go anywhere and not be recognized. So there, the challenge was just the money and all of, and everybody around them knowing they had the money. That was the the hard part for those guys. We would meet those guys socially, you know, here and there, but we, you know, we we weren't necessarily part of the circle necessarily. You know that that, that they were all surrounding uh Mirage which was which were the the company that was doing the turtles in those days. And they were right in in Northampton.
0: Do you do you see coming back closer to home ever?
1: Actually my wife and I want to travel. You know, back in two thousand six we went to all fifty states as part of a book tour. And uh we were looking for places to live and and we were thinking we might want to live in Alaska at some point. We want to live in New York City for a while. We want to live in Portland, Oregon, and we have some family obligations that keep us here in Southern California, but but eventually we will probably travel and live in a bunch of different places. So I don't think we're ever going to settle down.
0: That's great. Uh, that sounds great. I, and I, are you now uh, <laughs> empty nesters?
1: Just barely. Yeah. Yeah. Our um, our littlest. We have two two daughters. The older one uh, graduated UC Santa Cruz. She's up in uh, Portland and. And the younger one is uh, finishing up at Syracuse this year.
0: Is there another novel in your head? I know, and I'd like to hear about later the the visual communication project. But is there another novel first uh, brewing?
1: No, right now, right now, I'm really focused on on nonfiction, and you know that that project that you mentioned, figuring out um, essential principles of visual communication. That's that's my big research project right now. Um, I really admire creative people who, when they have anything like success, the next thing they do is completely different. Uh, when I was a kid, I loved the Beatles for that. I like, I like it about Stanley Kubrick that almost every film he made was a different genre. And so in a lot of ways, I look at, you know, what I've done so far and I just think, well, what haven't I done? And one thing I might like to do is an adaptation. There were a couple of of pre-existing works that I might like to adapt into a graphic novel uh there's a particular well the the Shakespeare play uh, as you like it is one of them and uh and another is uh the queen's gambit which is a novel by Walter Tevis the guy who wrote the hustler and the man who fell to earth really great book about um a female chess prodigy and and her rise up through the ranks um you know, it was, it was interesting. I found out that Heath Ledger had been set to direct an adaptation of The Queen's Gambit right before he died, which made yeah. him, which made me all the more sad that we had lost that guy because that shows that he had a lot of dimensions that we never got to see.
0: Um, have there been talks about, on the other end, a- adapting the sculptor? Has it been optioned or?
1: Oh yeah, it was. It was optioned by Sony. Um, Scott Rudin was involved, um, but in the end you know, they, they passed after one term. So we, you know, we got actually a lot of cartoonists will tell you that the best, um, the best fate is to have something just get optioned over and over and they never make the movie. Right. Cause it'll only disappoint and you get paid when it's optioned. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, so I managed to do that at least for, for one round. We'll see, you know, it's, it's, it's floating now. We'll, we'll see what happens.
0: Uh, it, it's interesting. Cause it could almost, it, it's kind of in between, uh, an art, I can imagine a more of a, uh, an indie art film and a superhero film.
1: Yeah, it could go either way. And, and I think that, you know, I still haven't, to my own satisfaction, I haven't figured out how to defuse certain booby traps in the story that could, that could lead it to be a really bad movie. Um, you know, I, it takes a while to figure out what you think of something after you make it. You're not necessarily the most objective person, but, um, the first question of anyone who who has expressed interest, you know, since since Sony uh, in making the movie, my you know, my first question is always like, uh, what do you think doesn't work? You know, what do you think needs to be changed? Do you imagine
0: anyone as David? You, I heard you talking about someone mentioning uh, Dustin Hoffman as as the uncle.
1: <laughs> yeah, maybe at this point, yeah.
0: I know De Niro. De
1: Niro. De Niro looks actually. My my father-in-law, who is the the uh, the model for for death, um, did look a little like De Niro in this last picture uh, that I took of him. I don't know that De Niro is the right guy for it. Um, I do know that you know these days, when I think of a good David Smith, there are, there are a few people who could probably do a good job, like Eddie Redmayne. Weirdly, though, I keep coming back to Donald Glover. I think of what I think of that performance of his uh, in The Martian. Yeah, uh, my protagonist is—he's a little, you know, he's a little on the spectrum, I think. And you don't see it as much in comics because you don't see the little motions and ticks and eye movements. You don't see that in a static medium like comics. But if it were actually a movie, I, you know, that's—that's that's one of those things that would be—it would be a lot clearer if the guy was a little on the spectrum. And I think that character of Donald Glover's in *In the Martian* was was kind of spot on. Well.
0: You should have your people get in touch with his people.
1: <laughs> yeah, <right>. um, <laughs> Cartoonists don't have people.
0: Yeah. You know I know. Well, people. you get someone to get him the book. Uh, a question I had about uh, the sculptor, David Smith, is that the one thing is isn't answered, but I didn't feel it had to be, is, or I guess I wonder, how good do you think he was before the magic happened?
1: Yeah, in a lot of ways, I, I think that you know, I think there might have been greatness in him, but there were also fatal flaws. He was always looking over his shoulder. He was always worried about what people thought of the work. Yeah, I, you
0: know, as I'm going to quote you from WGBH, he craves the sunlight. He craves the public. He craves being the object of others' attention. You know, as much as he needs to make the work.
1: Yeah, that's not, that's not a, that's not necessarily good. No. You, you know, it's a lot like um it's a lot like uh Orpheus and Eurydice, this this idea of I hope I have this right. Um where Orpheus has been released from hell um from the underworld and behind him his true love is following him. But if he looks back to make sure she's there, she will be forever sent back to the underworld that's how i remember and yeah and 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 of course this is this is i think how artists you know the 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 challenge of artists is to not look back to have that faith but you have to make a very very long journey (laughs) (laughs) without looking over your shoulder and that's hard for most of us i think yeah to look back
0: at the the glories and the, 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 the little jabs, how was it? I mean, do you read your reviews? Do you avoid them?
1: I read them all good and bad. And my wife will tell you, I pay more attention to the bad ones in, in, you know, in a constructive way that I, that I give them more, more weight, that I, that I take them to be more important. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, I think you can do it one of two ways. You can you can look at no reviews, or you can look at the good and the bad together. You don't get to choose. No way. It's all or nothing, and I'm I'm in the all camp because I think I learn I learn things when I read you know what people think of it, and I think most reactions are sincere. When you say you 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 read the negative
0: ones and for for constructive criticism, but maybe isn't that maybe after you get sad or angry for a day and then you come back to them i i've read i read you know one or two reviews that i didn't agree with or even the even the new york times review that was, was you know positive but i i didn't like the quibbles and i'm i'm being defensive on your behalf i can imagine can imagine what it would be like to be the person
1: oh well sure yeah no they can be depressing or you you know you can be pissed off or whatever but you know Imagine the worst-case scenario, right? The worst-case scenario is somebody hates your work for reasons that have nothing to do with the work, and they just they just have some kind of grudge, right? They have some kind of vendetta. That's the worst-case scenario. But in my opinion, you still pay attention to that because that still told you something important. And the important thing that it told you is your work was insufficiently powerful to overcome a grudge. That's still information, right? Right you still learn something.
0: That's a great point. That's a very, very healthy attitude. (laughs) I will, I will aspire to that. Uh, I remember here's a story I don't think I've ever told on here, but maybe I have. It's short. I used to review books for the San Francisco Chronicle at the end of my time there for a year or two. I do, you know, one every month or so. And I'm a pretty big poker fan and perhaps like one of the best poker books that's come out maybe ever, uh, came out and i was lucky enough that they let me review it and it was so positive with one negative paragraph (laughs) the day after it came out i got an email from the author and he was so upset with me and it was just it was an aesthetic choice that i disagreed with him about you know, about putting some some more gossipy, tawdry stuff in the book about the history of poker in Las Vegas, that I didn't think was needed in the book. But the point is, not only did I write him a rave, but he he's in Chicago looking up all the reviews at the moment, and it's giving me what it's all it does is give me little reviewer attention. <laughs>
1: <You> know, <laughs> right? Yeah. It, it, like, it, it adds to your strength. Yeah. strength. yeah.
0: Yeah. We made
1: up eventually. Yeah, it's it. you don't want to go there. It's it. that that's a bad place to go, and I I see people just consumed by you know like all the slights. You know, I there are some writers and artists who almost made a career out of vendettas, and I just think life's too short. But I but the thing is, I'm just that kind of. I mean, this is my temperament, right? So I'm a formalist. I'm kind of a scientist. So everything is information, but there are others for whom the work is very, very close to their heart. And so you can't strike at the work without damaging vital organs, you know, and, and that's just a different, it's a different way of working. And I understand that for them. Yeah, it's personal and it's always going to be personal because that's one of the things that gives their work vitality. So I can't necessarily hold it against them if they're maybe more sensitive about that stuff. I'm like, I'm more like that, you know, was it uh, Elijah Wood's character in Sin City where they're like, they're like chopping him up at the end and he's just not even reacting. Yeah, some of my critics will just like be chopping off limbs and I'm like, oh, look at that. Oh, yeah.
0: Or or the Monty <laughs> Python. Uh, yeah, right. The, the yes, black guy. Yes. Get slow, back it's here. Flesh, right. Yeah. Flesh wound. <laughs> um. Uh, would you like to talk a little bit about the visual communication project? I've read about it on your site, but I didn't really get a...
1: Uh, it's it's Well, the thing is, you know, I've come to the conclusion that a lot of visual communication is pretty bad. Um, you know, everything from, um, you know, safety signs, you know, safety cards or uh, like, you know, don't use the stairs in case of fire and, you know, onto terrible PowerPoint presentations and things like this and you know it occurs to me that every one of these every one of these different um, you know uh, disciplines every job that involves visual communication everyone is trying to kind of reinvent the wheel but th- the fact is all of them are grappling with the same principles and so i'm going to see if i can figure out what those principles are and in order to do so i need to just read about 50,000 pages worth of theory <laughs> and, and interview a few hundred people and, you know, basically sort of go back to college and earn 10 master's degrees so I can write a 200 page book. So that's going a little slowly.
0: That's one of my,
1: (laughs) my favorite
0: aspects of making this is that, you know, I'm only doing about three episodes a month and I just, I take immersion courses in people. Yeah. And then I I spend a week with someone and I talk to them and it's great. And then I have a stack of their, you know, their stuff to add to things I want to, or not, but usually I'm pretty much picking people I think I either
1: already like or I'm going to. Well, you've probably noticed too, this, at a certain point when you reach critical mass, you're learning about someone or you're learning about something in my case, you reach that critical mass where it's like, now I can explain it on a cocktail napkin in 20 seconds. Right? That's the point you want to reach. You want to reach that synthesis where all of that stuff it isn't just a collection of parts anymore but you can see the whole you can explain the whole and you can explain it simply or more complex but but you have that ability now because it's all inside your head the whole thing and that's what that's what I'm trying to get to now with you know all kinds of visual communication everything from you know powerpoint presentations to information graphics, data visualization, all of it. I've been describing this project as a kind of elements of style for visual communication.
0: Oh, great. My wife, Anya, is a visual artist, photographer, but also a graphic designer. And when she was a small child, she kind of was, she was very attached to these cave paintings she saw and how the idea of something being universal. And then as a young adult, she got these two great tattoos, fairly sizable, the only tattoos on her her two biceps are the man and the woman from the restroom signs. (laughs) They're beautiful, and they're so simple, and out of context, it's just so clear what they are in a way, although also unclear why they're there, which is kind of neat.
1: Well, it's a conversation starter. Yeah,
0: it sure is. The other thing what you were talking about uh, interests me is in, you know, I feel like you on Twitter and me and everybody else have been, you know, curious about the way people have used words in the past two years and miss miscommunicated intentionally. But I don't feel like we talked that much about the symbols and something that I hadn't thought of is after Charlottesville and before in the past year, people have been doing a lot of anti-Nazi propaganda using the swastika. Mm. And then someone wrote a along an essay and many, I saw, you know, arguments about it on Twitter about don't you're empowering the symbol by using it even negatively.
1: I go back and forth on that. I'm not really sure. You know, it is, it is one of the most powerful graphically powerful symbols, um, that anyone's ever made. But by, yeah, by propagating it, I go back and forth. I'm never quite sure. Are we giving it power or are we robbing it of its power by making it, uh, you know, tawdry and common, and I could see I could see arguments either way, um, but one one of the central thesis, uh, you know, of, of the book that I'm working on now is just that this notion that we often ascribe neutrality to visual symbols that that isn't necessarily there, you know, that we think, for instance, the the classic um, handicap symbol, right, with the stick figure sitting in a wheelchair, uh, we think of that as just encapsulating all of you know what it is to be disabled. And it seemed to be doing a really good job of that until somebody came up with an alternative in the last 10 years, which is that figure leaning forward and actively propelling themselves. And all of a sudden you realize, oh, wow, the old symbol was telling me something because it was passive. It was like you have to push this character, right? You know, the, the old one, you imagine that that's somebody just sitting waiting for somebody to come and help them, waiting for somebody to push the wheelchair. And now this new one, they're pushing themselves. They 're propelling themselves, they're leaning forward, they're going at some speed, and all of a sudden it reveals that there that that first symbol wasn't neutral. the first symbol did tell us something other than just some kind of oh there
0: it is that's great i'm I'm looking at it right now,
1: yeah, I think uh Roman Mars actually I think had had uh had covered that at some point, but I had already seen it up up at santa Cruz uh you know I had seen this on the side of a van and and I was really impressed because it it just lit up a light bulb over every single symbol ever, you know, including the the men's and women's rooms, right yeah, was <laughs> you know, just like, what are they telling me yeah what what am I receiving from this that I wasn't even aware I was receiving this is off topic,
0: and I also offer any guests the if you don't like something I brought up, I can leave it out but i uh I sometimes teach from, and I use a lot of, and there are a lot of wonderful TED Talks, but especially in the last two years, I've more and more and more taken uh, issue with the fact that they avoid politics so incredibly. And I'm wondering, are there guidelines?
1: No, actually, there were no political guidelines when I did my TED Talk in 2005, but I I was at the tail end of the first act for TED. When everything was still in Monterey, it was just this one annual event. So this is before they they went all Cirque du Soleil and, you know, they were like, (laughs) you know, Ted Muncy and, you know, like it was just everywhere. Right. Um, So there may be guidelines now about politics. The guidelines that they gave us were like, don't let it be your just typical corporate talk. Don't just pull it out of your back pocket and and do what you always do. And if you wear a tie, somebody's going to run up on stage and cut it off. (laughs) That's Basically it. Yeah. It was actually it was very it was a. Yeah, uh, encouraging set of guidelines. No mention of politics, I don't think. But you're right. Yeah, I can't think of any real political TED Talks. That's interesting. And there are a lot of TED Talks
0: that are just so, uh, so begging for some statement of something about social justice that, that seems like people <laughs> are told not to put in there. Uh-huh. Well,
1: there are progressive causes, but usually they're more along the lines of, like, getting clean drinking water for people and things like that, which, you which know, is that great. is part of the
0: progressive movement. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. But I just think in, in this past year, gosh, I don't know. If they don't start <laughs> – if if you can't take a stand now
1: – It's, it's – we're at an existential point. I mean, you know, I was – one of the things I, I brought up on Twitter, didn't have a good answer, but is. You know, we have any any talk of trying to make the species smarter, it, it raises the shadow of you know eugenics and things like that. And it's got a very very dark history. But, but at this point, I have to you know like we're we're at like that point that Vulcan supposedly got to you know like <laughs> in Star Trek. Yes. You know the origin of 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 you know the Vulcan. Yeah. Are, are we going to destroy ourselves or are we going to get smarter and and if there was some way for every person on earth, you know, every every pregnant woman on earth to get some kind of prenatal care that would result in a smarter fetus, it's just like for god's sake just do it because i don't think we have long to go. You know, i was studying trilobites for this project i'm working on. I was looking at trilobites. These these this species lasted for something like 170 million years. And I'm looking at it. And I'm just. I'm thinking like, oh, we're all so cocky because we've got a constitution that that kept us going for 230. Jesus Christ! It's the Klingon genes that are a problem. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Klingons had some good points. They do. <laughs> I can't believe we're going down this this uh, <laughs> this particular hole. Uh, you mentioned Twitter, and the one thing I thought when I. Uh, After I read The Sculptor, I found you on Twitter, and I follow you. Speaking of being two David Smiths, I I doubt it's happened, but have you ever been confused with another Scott who makes comics who's very active on Twitter?
1: Yes, I have, actually. I've gotten the occasional blowback from people who were angry either at Scott Adams Mm. and his political views. He's gotten pretty strange. Unbelievable. Or a webcomics artist named Scott Kurtz who would occasionally get into different fracases. I don't know Scott Kurtz. I'll look him up. But it was Scott Adams I was thinking of. I figured. So, yeah, there are two other cartoonists named Scott who get, get in trouble. And every once in a while, a stray bullet will, will graze my temples. But
0: for those of you who are wise enough to stay away from things like Twitter, uh, Scott Adams has become an insane Trumpian Yeah, he's a very strange douchebag. Uh, yeah, it, it's hard to. I mean, I have to admit, I I did have a weakness for Dilbert over the years, and it's just, it's a smart comic.
1: <laughs> I don't, I don't understand how he got from there to here. Well, you know, I played chess when I was a kid, and there were all these stories of great grandmasters, world champions, who in later life would just go completely bugfuck fuck crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, after a while, you have to figure there's some kind of correlation between between you know, creator intellectual achievement and and just losing it just losing your shit when you're when you're 60 or whatever yeah chess
0: seems especially like it would be prone to that just the incredible obsessive depth of thought you have to be engaged in oh yeah <laughs> all
1: day every day how serious were you very i'm serious about everything jamie Uh huh. <laughs> there's I do not i i don't i don't have casual interests when i was when I was a kid, I went through a series of obsessions, and then chess was the first of my grand obsessions. So I went three straight years thinking about nothing but chess. I, uh, I was dreaming chess. All I cared about was chess. It destroyed me when I realized I was never going to be world champion.
0: How did you
1: realize that? Well, I just wasn't good enough. <laughs> you know, I kept banging my head against that wall until I realized, no, I'm actually I'm not that good. I don't have the patience
0: being an obsessive do you have to just do you ever play or do you just have to leave it is
1: it gone it'll come back but just very casually i'll just like play on my phone and in fact i i even take back moves you know when i'm in line for lunch or whatever and then you know like i forgot where i was in the game and i start playing and i was like oh right yeah that there goes my queen i'll just take that move and if you take back moves you just become worse and worse and worse i i'm i'm gonna be the worst player on earth by the time i die uh, you know, that's
0: an attainable goal.
1: It's a superlative. Yes. Exactly. I'll take what I can yes, get. You
0: could have a legacy <laughs> as that.
1: I like this idea. I, I have this idea of doing a story where there are these aliens who watch the human race and they have superlatives that they recognize that nobody else does. Like somebody does the very best parking job ever and they're all like celebrating and they they just watching it on instant replay and they think it's so amazing. But the person who did it just like, you know, got out, went into Target, you know bought some pillows. He has no idea. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, I mentioned mentioned that there are these different tribes of comics. There are these four different tribes as I see them. And two of the tribes are the iconoclasts who are all about creating, you know, like ugly, raw, true things. And then the classicists who are interested in creating refined, well-crafted, beautiful things. Charles Burns kind of belongs to both tribes. You put those two things together, and you get something like black hole.
0: Where would you be?
1: I'm a formalist. I'm, yeah, I'm part of the the research and development wing. Where would Chris Ware be? He's part formalist, part iconoclast, I think. But he's well, actually, Chris Ware. I usually bring up Chris Ware as an example of somebody who's very hard to chart. Uh, but he's uh, he's not an intuitive, or he's not a what I call the animists. He's, he's the other three.
0: It was it was great to talk and uh, yeah I really appreciate what you do so thanks thanks Jamie I Thank wish you. you the best
1: you too and I've I've really enjoyed listening to the, the you know the archive of episodes you've gotten some wonderful people my my fellow Lexingtonian Eugene Merman uh, you know he went to my high school.
0: It's very easy to feel like I'm doing this in a vacuum, so I'm glad you listened to a few. Uh, the David Sedaris and George Saunders are great; those are my favorites.
1: I listened to both of them.
0: Oh, and uh, an Irish comedian named Maeve Higgins.
1: Haven't heard that one yet.
0: That one you might not have seen her, known her name. So that she's she's just so charming, and she has that accent, <laughs> and she's very funny. But thanks for listening. My pleasure. Uh, I'll let you know when this
1: is up. Cool. Thanks. Please do. Take care. You too. Take care.
0: Respect, endurance, some kind of lasting legacy. All noble hopes for those of us who do want some kind of attention or other. You can find all things Scott McCloud at scottmcleod.com. You can find some panels from uh, the sculptor on our page. Uh, for this episode at 15 minutes, That's 15minutesjamieberger.com. That's one 5 dot com Check out the sculptor. Find it in your local bar. It, it, it's a lovely book. As ever, our music is by Christian Kandari. Ed Patnote is the engineer. This is 15 Minutes. I'm Jamie Berger.